Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Nā mihi nui and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance tēnei. This week, we are celebrating some winners of New Zealand's top research prizes. 17 university academics were recognised with awards by the Royal Society Te Aparangi at their annual research honours dinner. The top award, the Rutherford Medal, went to distinguished Professor Jane Harding for her work with mothers and babies. Just over half of the prizes were awarded to women, and before we meet Jane, we're going to meet a couple of others first. First up, the Hamilton Award is an early career research excellence award from the Royal Society Te Aparangi. This year, it's gone to Dr Lisa Teimorenga from Victoria University of Wellington. Lisa, whose whakapapa is Napui, Nati Fatua, and Te Rarawa, is an expert in human nutrition. She's won the award for her internationally recognised work on the health impacts of sugar. I ask Lisa how much we know about sugar and what it does to our health. I think we're probably starting to understand sugar a little more than when I first started researching in this area, just after I finished my PhD in 2011. I think that the research that I have done and on which I've been awarded this Hamilton Award has contributed to increasing that understanding of the role of sugar in our health. And that role is not particularly positive, but perhaps not as toxic as others out there might have us believe. So tell me about your research. The piece of research that I received this award for I started working on in 2011 and it was basically a large systematic review and meta-analysis examining all of the research that had been conducted around the world looking at whether high sugar diets compared with low sugar diets increased risk of weight gain. And it might seem really obvious to people now that, of course, high-sugar diets are going to lead to weight gain. But really, before this meta-analysis came out, it seemed a bit equivocal. And partly this is because there are a lot of people, organisations, businesses out there who stand to gain from people believing that there's nothing wrong with a bit of sugar in your diet. And what our research showed... Um, was that people who have quite high amounts of sugar in their diet, primarily from sugary drinks, but not only sugary drinks, were more likely to gain weight over time than people who had lower amounts of sugar. Now, at the time, there was also a bit of talk about whether there was something special about the calories in sugar and whether there was something special about the calories in sugar that led to weight gain Perhaps there were some effects happening in the liver, something to do with fructose. 
And in the review, we were able to show that when you controlled for the effect of energy intake, actually there was nothing special about sugar. So what we found was that people who have high amounts of sugar in their diet tend to eat more food in total, more calories in total, and that's what's leading to the weight gain rather than anything magical about sugar. Right, so it's basically just too many calories. Too many calories because sugar is really easy to overconsume, particularly when you have it in a lovely sweet drink. What's the sugar content of a can of soda? So a can of Coke might be around 330 mils, and probably about 10% of that, the average soft drink, would be from sugar. So you might get 33 grams of sugar in a can of Coke. So that might be about eight teaspoons of sugar. So that's a lot of empty calories, isn't it? It's a lot of empty calories. And say if you had a can of Coke or a can of soft drink alongside your dinner, probably isn't going to lead you to eat less food. Whereas if you had a couple of pieces of fruit with the equivalent amount of sugar in it, you would tend to reduce the amount of food that you ate because the sugar in the fruit is going to be a little bit more filling because it comes along with fibre and a few other things in it that help to fill you up. So if sugar's a natural component of food, we shouldn't be scared of it in that sense. Yes, that's right. We certainly don't recommend that people cut out fruits and sweetened milk from their diets because those are natural sugars that come bundled with a whole pile of other really beneficial nutrients that are useful. Recommendations to reduce sugar intake um, are really based on reducing what we call free sugars or added sugars. So those are the sugars that are added to foods and drinks to make them sweeter. And that can include cane sugar, of course the white stuff that we all know about, but food manufacturers often use um, concentrated fruit juices as a way of adding sugar in what seems to be a healthier way. It's not any healthier. Fruit sugar's not really any different to cane sugar when it's refined and concentrated. So we live in a society where sugar is very available. We've talked about soft drinks, but there's all sorts of foods to which quite large amounts of sugar is added. Yes, so breakfast cereals are one example of a food group where lots of the cereals that you get out there have sugars added to them. That can either be as syrups and sweeteners that are added to the grains to make them crunchy, but often actually with dried fruit. And that's one area where we we have trouble trying to decide whether we should call that an added sugar or a natural sugar. I think in the case of cereals, when they've got lots of dried fruit in them that's making them taste really nice and sweet, might start thinking of that as something to add to your consume less of list. Is it easy enough for us currently to to know what are the natural sugars versus what are these free or added sugars in a food item? Currently it's really difficult for the average shopper to know when they read food labels whether the food is full of natural or added sugars, unless you have a lot of food knowledge or, you know, training in nutrition. And that's because there's no requirement to distinguish between added and intrinsic or natural sugars on food labels. The new Health Star rating, which can be a little controversial, does provide a way of giving consumers a bit of information about which foods in a category are better than others. But one of the problems with the Health Star rating is 
that sugar hasn't really been penalised enough. So a manufacturer can add fibre to a cereal, for example, like Nutrigrain, and that boosts their star score, even though it can be quite high in sugar. So there is a bit of work to be done in terms of the different traffic or star ratings and also food labels so that consumers can um, be more confident about what they choose. Work in progress, we're getting there, I think. This review that you did that basically said the problem with sugar is that it is associated with excess weight gain and it's to do with the fact it's just too many calories. What happened to the information from that review? How did that get used? So the systematic review was a key piece of evidence that informed the World Health Organization updated guideline on sugar intake for children and adults. So that was published in 2015, and that guideline is really based on the evidence from my systematic review and another review that looked at um, the effect of sugars on dental caries. The review was also central to the United States dietary guidelines, where they also recommend that consumers reduce their intake of added or free sugars. I think it's been used in Europe and various jurisdictions around the world have cited that review. Sugar is not the only string to Hamilton Award winner Lisa Taimoringa's research bow. More recently, I've continued to do a number of systematic reviews and meta-analyses, so I looked at the effects of saturated fat intake on various risk factors for cardiometabolic diseases in children, and that systematic review um, informs the WHO draft guideline on saturated fat intake in adults and children, which was released earlier this year for consultation. So the guidelines suggest that people should reduce their saturated fat intake to less than 10% of their total energy. That's a little bit hard for the average consumer to interpret, but these recommendations are best used by health organisations within a country to translate them into food-based guidelines that a consumer would more readily understand. But Basically, to consume less than 10% of your energy from saturated fat, it would mean avoiding fatty meat, cutting down on butter, choosing more fruits and vegetables, avoiding the stuff that goes hard as much as possible, even cutting down your coconut fat that goes hard. It's full of saturated fat as well. I think in New Zealand, we probably consume on average about 13% of our calories from fat. So it's not a huge reduction that people should make. It's quite contentious, (laughs) this issue of saturated fat, but it's likely that the massive reductions in cardiovascular disease that we've seen over the last 40 years or so is attributable in large part to reductions in saturated fat in many countries. And recently we've just published another systematic review and meta-analysis looking at the effect of carbohydrates on a whole range of health factors in the Lancet Journal. This is one of the very top medical journals in the world, so it's had huge impact. I can't believe how much impact it's had in the short time that it's been published. But basically that review shows people who consume more whole grains or more dietary fibre are less likely to suffer from a whole range of health outcomes like diabetes, cardiovascular disease, a range of cancers. 
And so this is going to inform the World Health Organization recommendations on carbohydrates that should be released sometime in the near future. But it it just confirms that there's no need to cut out carbohydrates from our diets as long as the types of carbohydrates that we're having are the right type. And that is carbohydrates that contain lots of natural dietary fibre or are whole grain based like whole grain cereals, porridge, muesli, whole grain bread, whole grain pasta, that sort of thing. One of the trends that I see in science these days is a lot more attention to mataranga Māori, a lot more attention to Māori science. Do you want to just tell me a bit about that? So in our health research fields, I think traditionally we've had a very Western biomedical-centred way of thinking about health and also thinking about individuals are suffering from health, perhaps in isolation of their communities, their culture, their values and beliefs. And we're increasingly accepting or thinking about the fact that actually different groups of people have different ways of viewing the world and different values. And that if we're going to improve the health of all people in New Zealand, especially Māori, we need to think about health services in a different way. And the best way to do that is really to allow our communities to determine the way those health services look and are delivered. So the mataranga that I want to bring into my research is not anything specific. It's not something you can learn from a book. It's something that you hear from the people out there in the community and it's based on their lived realities and values. Thanks, and congratulations, Lisa. That was Lisa Taimoringa, and she lectures in Māori Health at Victoria University of Wellington. She's also involved with two centres of research excellence, the Riddit Institute and Ngāpai Ōte Maramatanga. In 2018, she was awarded a Rutherford Discovery Fellowship by the Royal Society Te Aparangi, and she is the winner of the 2019 Hamilton Award for Early Career Excellence. Kei te whakaronga mai koe ki tō tātou ao horihori, ki te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. I'm Alison Balance, and you're with Our Changing World on RNZ. Our next award winner in the 2019 Royal Society Te Aparanga's Research Honours is Dr Ocean Mercier. Of Ngāti Parau descent, she's head of Te Kawa a Maui, the School of Māori Studies at Victoria University of Wellington. Ocean has won the Callaghan Medal for outstanding contributions to science communication. Kia ora, welcome to the show and a big congratulations for winning the Callaghan Medal, which I understand has a personal connection to you. There is a personal connection. Paul Callaghan was my postdoc mentor, postdoc supervisor on an Antarctic sea ice project, but he was also a great friend. So you started your scientific career as a physicist? I did, yes. I did all my degrees in physics and my first research projects in physics and taught uh, various physics courses at undergraduate. Uh, So I was in physics for 10 years. So I gather you were the first Māori woman to get a PhD in physics? So the researchers said. (laughs) Yes, and then uh, my good friend Dr Pauline Harris uh, got a PhD in astrophysics not soon after me. Yeah, and she's uh, from Ngāti Kahungunu. When did you decide to go into science? I always loved maths, and I really enjoyed science, physics in particular, at school. 
and I had great teachers. That's often the story, isn't it? You have a, someone who inspires you, and for me it was my uh, physics teacher in the sixth form, Joseph Fernandez. And just kept on going because physics and maths were for me a kind of a, a concrete way to understand the world and how it worked. What was your PhD on? My PhD was called The Optical Conductivity of Colossal Magnetoresistance Manganites. And it had nothing at all to do with X-Men. <laughs> but uh, these uh, manganites were part of the family of superconductors. So superconductors people are, tend to be more familiar with. You know, at a certain temperature can conduct electricity with no loss at all. And the colossal magnetoresistors held promise for similar kinds of reasons. But that's a long time ago now. <laughs> and you mentioned you worked with sea ice with Sir Paul Callahan. Did you get to go to Antarctica? I did, yes. We spent two and a half weeks on the ice, as they say, and did a number of experiments. Uh, this was during November. Long, long days. Plenty cold. But we were looking at uh, the structure of the sea ice in terms of its diffusive properties of the salty water that's locked into the sea ice sheet. And we were also testing a pretty brilliant design of probe that um, Paul Callahan and uh, researchers had developed over the years. One of the things that was so brilliant about this one is that it was like a mini MRI machine. So with an MRI machine, as those of us who've been inside one knows, they're huge and they use a massive magnet. But with this version of that, it was portable. It was basically a plastic pipe that we built. It was maybe two metres high and it used the Earth's magnetic field as the kind of analogous field for, for an MRI machine. So it's like an MRI for the sea ice. Yeah, yeah, quite brilliant. Uh, Paul was actually much envied by other researchers that we were in Antarctica with at the same time from around the world. Mm. Now, your career since then has taken quite a different path, so tell me a bit about that. Yeah, so well, Paul Callahan was a part of that shift as well. So he allowed me to go part-time on this postdoc we were working on in order that I take up Te Reo Māori. So I learnt Te Reo Māori uh, here at Te Kawa Māori at Victoria University, did all their courses, and then they invited me to teach a course called Māori Science that they'd offered for a while. But I didn't have any curriculum, so it was up to me to develop new curriculum. And I just saw that as a wonderful chance to fill in some background for myself and not having the language growing up and... Not having lots of missing uh, pieces and lots of gaps in terms of what I knew about Te Ao Māori and my own heritage. And so that was the transition that I never went back from. <laughs> so yeah. what is Māori science? So the Māori science course, to give you an explanation of what's in that, may help to answer that question. So we talk about traditional Māori knowledge, what we're calling today mātauranga Māori, in different fields, whether it's astronomy, voyaging, engineering, knowledge of medicine and uh, food gathering and all sorts of things related to the uh, natural world. But it's also how that knowledge is contemporary, how it's used today. So it, it's about the values as well that sit behind all of that knowledge and how it's, how it's used, how it's shared. It's also about some of the questions around why are there still so few Māori people in the, the natural sciences, if you like, the modern sciences, and is that a symptom of something else? And so we unpack and explore all of those questions in that course. And so for me, Mātauranga Māori contains Māori science 
or pūtaiao as we like to call it, as a Māori way of producing new knowledge and new understanding about our world. So is it a little bit about looking backwards as well as looking forwards? Yeah, absolutely. So we're connecting to quite a deep archive of knowledge here, hundreds of years old, uh, that's still very relevant because we still live in, a, in an environment that has vestiges of, of those older environments, even though it's radically reshaped and changed today and uh, looks, looks incredibly different and transformed and there are new species here and all of that sort of thing. In order to un- better understand that heritage, that natural heritage and history, we absolutely need Mātauranga to give us that basis and that context. So, yes, it is very much about looking to the past, but also solving the problems of the now. Um, Cody Dieback is a, is a an interesting example that's been getting a lot of airplay, and that uh, can be traced back to Komatua in the north there, working alongside researchers, Māori researchers. So there's heaps of interesting stuff that's being done in the Māori science space, whether it's Māori scientists or Mātauranga Māori practitioners um, observing their world, using those observations to come up with new insights as to what's going on and what are the challenges and how those challenges are, are rolling out and manifesting in different ways. It seems to be much more included, and I'm thinking in things like the National Science Challenges in the last few years. Yes, absolutely. And working with uh, Professor Phil Lester here at Victoria University on a project on wasps, and our Vision Mātauranga component is around Māori perspectives on pest control generally, but also biotechnological controls of wasps, and broader questions around the ecosystem and pests and what are priorities for Māori and what are their aspirations in that area. So, yeah, absolutely, the National Science Challenges have been great for opening up space for Māori researchers to explore these questions alongside Pākehā scientists or other Māori scientists, yeah. That specific WASP project, can you tell me a bit more about that? You've already done some work out of it? Yes, yes. In fact, we're wrapping that up. And so I've had two master's students working with different cohorts. So they've been uh, pitching the idea of certain biotechnological controls. And these include techniques such as genetic engineering and gene editing and gene drives and seeing what people today think about about those in the context of pest control. Could these be acceptable methods to add to uh, our toolkit around controlling, and not just wasps. Wasps were our prototype species, uh, but of course we're thinking in the context of a predator-free New Zealand that's given giving breathing room f- to our birds by reducing our numbers of possums and stoats and, and rats and the like. Uh, so... There is a possibility here for uh, biotechnological controls of those those creatures. What do people think about that? That's sort of our basic research question. And as you can imagine, the um, views are across the spectrum, but we were particularly interested in Māori views, uh, for instance, the views of Māori people who are involved in businesses that are particularly affected by wasps. And certainly there was a little bit of openness there to consider... Uh, biotechnological controls in that case. What other kind of collaborative research projects are you working on at the moment? One of the projects I'm working on with Ngāpaio Te Maramatanga, the Māori Centre for Research Excellence, Dr Anne-Marie Jackson from Otago and I are leading a project on exploring community connections to place through environmental activism or environmental mahi. 
And so Anne-Marie, Naomi Simmons, uh, Marama Muru Lanning, Huya Yanke and myself are working together uh, leading different community projects to explore what it is about working with Te Taiao, our environments, that strengthens people's connections to, to places. And with a view to thinking about, well, how can we then enhance people's connections to place and people's aroha, in a sense, in their kaitiakitanga of place uh, through what we learn from these projects. So one of the neat things about this project is that it's a sort of an umbrella that supports a number of specific cases going on in different parts of the country from South Island, North Island, and very uh, grassroots projects that uh, are tackling very specific issues, so fruit trees is one of them, and heritage fruit trees. Another is Voyaging Waka, that's Anne-Marie's project. But what can we learn through these individual projects and, and sharing our learnings across them? Yeah, so that, that one's very collaborative, and we're hoping to wrap that up next year. But in a sense, the research itself is, has dropped in and, uh, at a moment in time when these people are they're on the ground doing things already, and we've just lent a bit of uh, financial resource and maybe a, a bit of an bit of oomph to uh, what they're already doing and hoping that that will continue on into the future. So not only are you doing good science, but you also, and the reason you've won the Callaghan Medal, obviously, which is about science communication, is that you do a lot of science communication and sharing science. So tell me about the kinds of things you do. Right. Well, as an academic, I do the usual things of uh, <laughs> teaching courses. I've built up a program around a kind of Māori science, Indigenous knowledge and science theme that contributes to our Māori resource management here at Māori Studies Victoria. But there's also a bit of educative work of colleagues and the academic community generally uh, because this is this is sort of a new thing still, this interface between mātauranga and science and exploring that. But there are a number of different audiences who are looking at ways that they can draw upon mātauranga to enrich the science that they're teaching, whether that's primary school students and teachers, uh, secondary school, uh, across the tertiary sector, uh, policy uh, people. So there's that kind of just accepting and speaking and engagement and going and talking to some people or running a workshop. But I also think one of the reasons that the, the Callaghan Award came to me was also the Project Mātauranga, the TV work that continues to have airtime in different spaces. People still come up to me and say, oh, I watched your episode the other day. And whether they watched it online or they saw it on NITV in Australia... It's it's great to to hear that that those amazing case studies, twenty six different projects that are all exploring in some way how a problem got solved not through science alone, not through mātauranga alone, but through the combination of those, how that uh, continues to resonate and continues to inform the ways that people are. Uh, putting mātauranga and science together in their own work. I do enjoy talking to people about this area because I feel like for myself, being Western trained in the sciences, it wasn't until I came to Māori studies that I actually reflected on the history and philosophy and the background behind the operational science that I was doing. And so I feel like I'm always taking people on a journey with me that kind of replicates my own journey. Mm. Do you see more Māori science students coming through now? I feel like we do see more, and it may be 
that our connections are stronger, i.e. the the support systems are designed to to sort of make them more visible to us. So we we mentor and make sure that they're looked after. And we we would love to see more, yeah. So we need more. (laughs) And what would your ultimate goal be that... In a sense, you don't need to sit separately in a Māori Studies Department, but that Mataranga would be so integrated into the science that the two are inseparable, maybe. Yeah, no, that's a really great point. I mean, I think with Māori Studies, there is already the the kind of ethos here of holistically working across disciplines. We have a, a, a huge array of disciplines here, archaeology, psychology, linguistics, physics, political studies. Over in physics, you've got physicists and some chemists and some mathematicians. So I would love to see all of the disciplines open up a bit more so that they're better able to engage across disciplines. And I think uh, mātauranga and science is an opportunity and invitation to, to do more of that. Thanks, Ocean. That was Ocean Mercier from Te Kawa Amaui, the School of Māori Studies at Victoria University of Wellington, and she has won the 2019 Callaghan Award. She is also involved with the Biological Heritage National Science Challenge, as well as Ngāpai o Te Maramatanga. Finally on Our Changing World tonight, let's meet the winner of New Zealand's top research prize, the Rutherford Medal. The 2019 award goes to Distinguished Professor Jane Harding from the University of Auckland. Jane is only the fourth woman to win in the 29-year history of the Rutherford Medal, and she wins it for outstanding medical research that has resulted in better lifelong outcomes for mothers and babies. A big congratulations on winning the Rutherford Medal. What does it mean to win the Rutherford, which is New Zealand's top science honour? It's truly awe-inspiring and humbling and rather alarming, actually, to think that you've been awarded this medal that is such a a huge honour. Well, you've been awarded it for a lifetime of work in which your work has made a profound difference to the lives of mothers and babies, not just in New Zealand, but around the world. So tell us what you actually do. I'm a paediatrician by background. My specialty is neonatology, newborn babies. And for most of my career, I have both worked clinically in the newborn intensive care unit and also done research More recently, I've been focused entirely on research, but the research has always been about how can we make things better for mothers and babies, not just before and around the time of birth, but for the rest of their lives, trying to understand what it is that influences how mothers and babies are when they're born, what we can do to improve that, and as I said, what we can do to change things not only then, but for the rest of their lives. I'm aware of your work because of glucose in newborns. Can you tell me that story? Tell me about what was the problem you identified and the research that you did that led to a solution. The problem with glucose levels in babies, both high and low glucoses, is one that's been puzzling clinicians around the world for as long as we've known about how to measure glucose in babies. Our focus has mostly been about low glucose levels. This is a problem that's really common in newborn babies. As many, perhaps as a third of all babies born, are born at risk of low glucose levels. That is, babies who are born small or large or preterm or whose mothers have diabetes. Those are the main risk groups. And those babies have about 
a 50% chance of having low glucose. Is that is one in two of those babies will have a low glucose level after birth. The real problem with that is that glucose is the major fuel for the brain. So in a baby who has a relatively big brain, if the blood glucose is low, there's a chance that the brain won't have enough fuel and that can lead to brain injury. So we started on this problem because it's really common and because although we've known about low glucoses and been treating it for decades, we don't really have good treatments and we don't really know how low is a problem for any given baby. So we started off by focusing on treatment. The current main treatment at that time was if the baby's glucose was low and it didn't respond to feeding, would be to give intravenous glucose by drip. And that, of course, requires the baby being in an intensive care unit, separating it from the mother, makes it difficult to breastfeed, very stressful for all concerned. So we started by trialing a sugar gel, a simple sugar solution in a gel form that could be rubbed inside the baby's cheek. That had been used before in some places, but there'd never been any really robust evidence as to whether it worked or not and whether it was safe or not. So we started in Waikato Hospital with Deborah Harris and Phil Weston, who are the people involved there, to run a trial to see whether the sugar gel really was effective and safe. And we showed in a very large trial that indeed it was effective and safe. And not only did it help keep babies out of intensive care units for low glucose levels, but it actually improved breastfeeding, keeping babies with mothers and taking some of the stress away clearly made a difference to breastfeeding levels. That was tremendously exciting. We published that story and since the publication, which has only been about five years, we know that this treatment's been taken up in many, many places all around the world. And everywhere where people have studied it and reported it, they've found the same thing. Using the gel decreases the rate of admission to intensive care for low glucose levels and improves breastfeeding rates. So that's very exciting. At the same time, we were working on the other part of the problem, which is how low does the glucose have to be in which babies to cause problems. So we were looking at babies who'd had low glucose levels and those who hadn't, and what happened to them as they grew up. And we studied these children repeatedly, and we showed that when they were around four and a half, children who'd had even one low glucose level that we didn't know about clinically and didn't treat were more likely to have some problems at four and a half. So we've now moved on to say, well, if even low glucoses that we don't know about are going to cause a problem, then we need to be doing something about preventing low glucose levels, not just treating it. So our focus for the last few years has been on, could we use the same simple, safe sugar gel to prevent low glucose levels? And it seems that we probably can. And now we're just waiting for the results of a very large study to see whether that also helps keep babies out of intensive care and whether it changes long-term outcomes. And that study is ongoing. You mentioned a large study there with lots of babies, so that's part of the key to this, isn't it, that very rigorous research like this does involve big sample sizes. It takes a while to get results. It does require large sample sizes. The, the big 
prevention study I've just talked about has recruited over 2,000 babies. That's involved 12 centres in Australia and New Zealand, and it's taken us more than five years. And that also requires substantial funding. So being able to put all those things together, the people who are willing to take part in the various neonatal units, the families who are willing to take part, the funding to do it, and the time it takes are all quite daunting, but terribly important if we're going to know the answer for sure. How has our understanding of the importance of things like the mother's health while she's pregnant with the baby in the time that you've been working in this field, how's our understanding of that changed? Our recognition that mother's health is important for the baby is a very ancient one. What's changed over the last, I suppose, 30 years has been the recognition that events before birth don't just change the health of the baby at the time of birth, but can set up the health of that baby right through their lives and even into the next generation. And coming to understand that process, some of the things that influence those changes that might not be obvious at birth, and perhaps beginning to understand how we might intervene later to minimise that risk, have really evolved substantially over the last decades. What other research projects are you working on at the moment? I'm sure you have more than one on the go. Yes, well, one of the the joys and challenges of working in this area is that there are always many projects that you have on the go and many more that you'd like to be going on with. In addition to the studies on low glucose, we have some studies on high glucose that are ongoing. We have a number of studies around nutrition, particularly nutrition of preterm babies and Again, the importance of that, not just for their early growth and health, but for their lifelong health and what we can do to optimise that health by something as simple as how babies are fed soon after they're born. I gather that you've also discovered an association between something called chest percussion and brain injury in babies. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yes, the study about chest percussion, chest physiotherapy in babies arose some, I suppose, about 20 years ago when we noted that a very small number of babies who had been extremely preterm and extremely ill had developed a very unusual form of brain injury. It was a kind of injury that we had not seen before and we didn't really know what it could be about. So my research was really about what could have caused this injury. And after a number of studies, we discovered that a unit in the UK had reported a similar kind of brain injury. And when I contacted the paediatricians involved to say, did you ever find out what this was? They said they thought that it may have been due to chest percussion, to chest physiotherapy in certain tiny vulnerable babies. Needless to say, we were horrified at the thought that a treatment that was being given to benefit these babies might actually be causing harm. So very quickly, I needed to go back and do a much more extensive study and show reasonably convincingly that indeed the babies who had developed the injury had had more chest physiotherapy, more percussion, and it was likely that this might have been the cause. That was a terribly difficult time for everybody. It was terribly difficult, obviously, for the families whose children had been injured, was difficult for all of the neonatal staff who had been given this treatment 
in good faith believing that it really helped. And it was a very difficult time for everybody while we talked to the families, tried to understand what had happened, tried to make sure that there weren't any other babies involved that we didn't know about, and tried to address the concerns of the families over quite a long period of time. But the key was doing the research quickly and convincingly to show that indeed this was the problem, which allowed us to to change things and stop other babies, both locally and around the world, undergoing similar treatment. What inspired you to get involved in medicine and science? I'm not sure why I got into medicine. I didn't know any doctors. There was nobody in my family who was a doctor. I don't think I really knew what a doctor was. But I did want to be a doctor from very early on. And I'm sure my family thought I was crazy, but they supported the idea anyway. And then once I'd studied medicine, I was attracted to pediatrics in the end because I really liked the way children got very sick very quickly but got better very quickly. And you could deal with the difficulties of dealing with children but make such a difference. And again, making a difference not just now but for the whole family and for the rest of their lives. And the research grew from that, really. Not only can we do this and make children better, but surely we ought to be able to do this better and understand more. There was too much that we didn't know and couldn't do. There still is. Thanks, Jane. That was Jane Harding from the University of Auckland and the Liggins Institute. She's the winner of the 2019 Rutherford Medal the highest honour awarded by the Royal Society Te Aparangi. A big congratulations to all the 2019 Research Honours winners. To find a full list of the winners, just head to the Our Changing World webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. Some of the winners have been on Our Changing World previously, and there will be links to those stories there as well. Don't forget, we're a podcast on your favourite podcast app, and you can stay in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook, where we are RNZ Science. I'm Alison Balance, and this Our Changing World podcast from RNZ first aired on the 17th of October 2019. You can find this story again at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. You'll also find interviews with other winners of 2019 Research Honours there, and interviews with winners from previous years as well. While you're there, why not sign up for our free weekly email newsletter? You can listen to RNZ, Our Changing World, on your favourite podcast provider and find my chemistry podcast, RNZ Elemental, there as well. Elemental is celebrating the 150th anniversary of the periodic table of elements and we're up to ruthenium and samarium. I am still loving RNZ's video series, The Aotearoa History Show, It's a 14-part look at New Zealand and its people, and it's on the podcasts page at rnz.co.nz. Many thanks for your company. If you'd like to get in touch, we're on Facebook and Twitter as RNZ Science. Bye for now. Kia ora mai.